Hello, and welcome to Fault Lines, Reagan National Defense Forum special series confronting the new alliance of global repressors. We're recording in person from the Reagan National Defense Forum. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. I'm joined by Director of Policy John Lipsy, and we are honored and thrilled to have Matt Pottinger with us today. Matt is the chair of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy's China program. He's a distinguishing visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford uh, and is widely regarded as the person who uh, really played a key role in changing the U.S. approach to China in the last administration. Quite, a, quite an achievement. Matt, I just kind of want to lead off by talking about the forum a little bit. Has you, You've been here all day. You were here last night. Have you seen something or heard something that you thought was really relevant for the national security issues we care about? Yeah, so I, it's great to be with you, and, uh, and, and it was great to be um, part of a team uh, of people who helped the president make, make a shift on China policy that, that we're, we're seeing sustained to some degree right now under under the Biden administration, which is great. I, I, you know, this morning uh, over breakfast, uh, Mark Theason talked about uh, some research that he's done recently that showed that for all of the money that is uh, being legislated to support uh, Ukraine and their very brave fight against uh, a... Uh, Imperial revanchist autocrat murderer <laughs> that uh, repressor, as we say, uh, as repressor. repressor. I like repressor, yeah. although I don't like alliance of repressors. I think you guys got we got to blow that up. Yeah. Maybe it's axis going okay. forward. All right. But uh, Mark's work found that around ninety or more than ninety dollars of uh, or ninety percent of every dollar that is uh, earmarked actually stays in the United States. Not only does it stay in the United States to hire people to build Abrams tanks and vehicles and ammunition and so forth, but it is it allows us to move stockpiles of old aging uh, ammunition to Ukraine and to replace it, refresh that um, with newer equipment, newer systems. We're actually expanding our ability to scale up munitions. It turns out, you know, it's not like the days of Rosie the Riveter where you can just on a dime start cranking stuff out. It actually takes pretty complex supply chains to be able to make the sorts of munitions that are precise and that uh, you can fight back against Putin's uh, uh, army with. I guess I would just say that that, that's, that was some pretty good ammunition for the argument that we benefit, the United States benefits, our national security benefits, when we support uh, brave Europeans on the front line of the largest war in Europe since 1945. All right, so let's talk about this axis of, of global repressors. There's uh, of course, the Russian aggression against Ukraine. China is our, you know, peer competitor or near peer competitor in the world. They are, you know, bristling with threats at Taiwan. We're seeing what's happening in Gaza. Is it an axis? Are these uh, these regimes, these rogue regimes, this this axis of evil? Are they actually working together in a way that the U.S. needs to address in a comprehensive yeah, way? Yeah, absolutely. Look, that's that's the other thing for people who argue that, geez, well, we really need to just focus on the Taiwan situation. Look, it, this is a multi-headed hydra. It is one organism, increasingly uh, uh, coordinated. Go back to Xi Jinping's first trip abroad as leader of China 11 years ago. Where'd he go? He went to Moscow. He's met, I believe the count is now 44 times that he's met in person with Vladimir Putin. Xi Jinping went there with a strategic idea in mind, which was that we want and need Europe uh, to be challenged, thrown into chaos, quite literally, by Vladimir Putin. 
we will help provide, we the Chinese will provide the, that material support, diplomatic support, propaganda support. According to a recent State Department report, China spends more money on pro-Russian propaganda worldwide than Russia spends Amazing. on pro-Russian propaganda worldwide. Remember, they signed this no limits friendship uh, on the basically within just 20 days before Putin launched his armored assault on Kiev. And then if you look at what's going on in Gaza and the attack on Israelis by Hamas, um, I, it might have been Secretary Austin who said today that everyone should have gotten a chill down their spine when, when Hamas leaders were hosted in Moscow just a few weeks after they had slaughtered uh, women and children and elderly people and kidnapped hundreds of others. Um, so, yes, and, and what's China been doing during this time? They have, on a dime, shifted their outbound propaganda to be anti-Israel, deeply anti-Semitic. Even in China's internal propaganda, you've seen a flourishing, uh, really an amplification uh, by the state of anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli uh, content. Uh, they've erased Israel literally from the map, from Alibaba and from Baidu, the two two of the leading uh, platforms. So yes, all of these things are actually tentacles. Pick pick your you know your analogy, heads of a hydra. And as that was going on, just after Hamas launched its uh, terror assault, China began ramming the ships of Philippine vessels in the South China Sea just offshore of the Philippines. And, and uh, they've been trying to prevent Philippine Navy from resupplying some of the military outposts like at Second Thomas Shoal just, just offshore. All of these things are connected. And so uh, we, we need to understand that this will have a compounding effect if we don't, if, if we don't deter effectively, but also deal with and win decisively the wars that these, this axis has put onto our plate. So I, might, I might throw North Korea into the mix as well. Yeah. They're supplying uh, Russia with their uh, with ammunition. There has actually some concerning um, troop movements and the like or, uh, at the demilitarized zone right now. Um, what? How do you think about the U.S. and its allies' capacity to deal with all of these hotspots on all of these fronts? Um, we, I think there's a common refrain that we're well behind, we're, we're just behind the eight ball in terms of modernizing our technological capabilities, our defense forces on having a, a posture that will sat, will deter China from moving, uh, taking more aggressive action in the South China Sea, like you're alluding to, or to Taiwan. How, how do you think about our capacity right now to deal with all of these threats on all of these fronts and, and create a better, um, deterrent situ uh, posture to, to cause, um, this access to to hesitate and to pull back. Yeah. So look, we we are the world's largest economy. We're the most innovative economy. We have um, a large network of alliances with other major economies. Uh, Japan is the world's third largest economy. Uh, South Korea it has an incredible industrial base. Uh, they make ships better than we do. They, I think between Japan and Korea, they've got a lot more capacity to do that. So what we need to start doing is thinking about our allies not only as, uh, you know, in sort of the old-fashioned thing that there are protectorates, you know, ones that, no, no, these are, these are 
um, these are two-way alliances, and we need to actually leverage the industrial capacity of our allies much more effectively than we do. Some of what we were talking about on the on the panel that I was was on today was the idea of removing some of the restrictions that prevent us from transferring technology to allies to be able to make weapons that Australia. we simply... Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Australia yeah. is like... I mean, it, going going to Australia to do defense contracting should be as easy as, as going to Wisconsin. Um, and we will benefit from that. We will... And Australia will benefit uh, as well. So I do think we have, have it. But what we need to remember is that um, wars that start out as sneak attacks and then single battles and, you know, you did the Battle of Kiev where uh, incredibly against all all the odds and all the prognostications you know, Kiev defended itself and, and thrust Russia back behind lines. The next phase of war ends up being a grind. It just, uh, most wars end up in, in some form of war of attrition. We've got to make sure that we have scaled capacity together with our allies to be able to stay in a fight for a long time. That is a really important part of deterrence. We're less likely to get into a fight if it looks like we are logistically and industrially capable of, of really hanging in a fight and ultimately prevailing in it. And so I think that would, that, that would be the thing that we should, I think, be focused on. How do you crank out munitions? You know what an LRASM is? It's a long-range anti-ship missile that you launch from bombers. We need a lot of those because the Chinese Navy, we could actually sink the Chinese Navy if it were to attempt uh, a fight. We don't need to get super up close to do that if we're using bombers at a standoff distance to, la- to launch these things. But we're not, we're not building a lot of those LRASM missiles. Um, uh, Boeing makes a, a variant called, a, I think it's called a, a propelled or, or a propulsion joint direct attack munition uh, that can go a long way and, and, and sink a ship. These are the sorts of things that we need to be scaling up together with allies. That will make us far more fearsome and will make people like Vladimir Putin, who ultimately they, they roll the iron dice to fight when, they, when they're very confident they're going to win. Even when they're wrong about that, by the way, as Vladimir Putin is finding out. But you don't want them to pick up those dice and say, is today the day? Is this the day that I think I should go for it. I'm noticing that the Americans don't don't have much in their stockpile in the way of anti-ship missiles, for example. These are the sorts of things that we got to really, really focus on. All right, let me ask you about uh, the other kind of the other part of the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China. Our economies are hugely connected. It's the biggest economic relationship in the world. Our large parts of our economy do depend on things from China. How far can we go? So a couple of questions, I think. How far can we go in decoupling the two economies? And then second, what do you you think of kind of this recent spate of news from the Biden administration, you know, the the meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping in California, uh, the, you know, these, these, perhaps the reestablishment of the military to military communications, this effort to make it look like things are back to normal, at least at the top level. What's, what's your, what's your take on kind of that view of China? Well, look, if you, if you look at the, you know, China's got massive trade links with the world, right? They, they have more countries that are, that are their number one trading partner than the U.S. has as other countries that are trading partner. But the momentum is now moving in a negative direction for China. More and more countries are finding China falling from their number one trade partner to two, to three, 
our, our number one trade partner is Canada, right? I think it may be that Mexico's overtaken China as well. We are now the number one, uh, I mean, we, we are the number one export market for Germany, for example. And everyone thinks oh, Germany can't have bad relations with China. It's so important. We're way more important to Germany than China is. The other thing is, because China is disproportionately an exporter to these societies, these countries, it's actually easier for us to diversify over time because we don't depend on China as a major market. China's not nearly as big of a market for us as we are for them. That's actually works to our advantage. We can start substituting, finding ways. A lot of, I talk to board rooms regularly, all of them have what they call a China plus one strategy now, mm -hmm. which means like you can't just rely on China. Some of them joke that now we have a, a, a we have a one or a two or a three plus China strategy. They are diversifying their supply chains. They know they're not going to be able to crack the China market that's always been dangled as this sort of promise in the future. Uh, a lot more companies are getting wise to that. Now, the second piece, you're talking about President Biden's meeting with, uh, with Xi Jinping. It's good when the President of the United States talks with the Chinese leader, mainly because the Chinese leader is the only one in their system who's able to make a decision about anything important. So that is, that is the channel, right? A lot of the stuff that happens at a lower level is a waste of time, but you want the presidents talking. It's good that they've met for a second time since President Biden's been elected. The idea, however, that um, we might be able to shift to some sort of status quo ante, go back to you know engagement, is uh, not in any way in line with what Xi Jinping's ambitions and plans are. Um, he has plans to decouple on his terms. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that plan playing out over several years. It was stated explicitly in what they call the 14th five-year plan that they put out in March of 2021, where they basically said, we will dominate all you know, major high-tech supply chains, and we will make the rest of the world increasingly dependent on us, and we will use that as uh, uh, leverage. Um, it has a, a deterrent, he says, but it's really for offensive economic leverage. Xi Jinping is, is really the one who's dictating the deterioration in China's ties with other with industrialized democracies around the world. We, we may wish that that were not the case. It, it is. Uh, I, I don't think that we're, you're going to see much more than just sort of a, a slight variation or tactical pause in some of the, uh, the, the tougher rhetoric and so forth. But ultimately, Xi Jinping has already uh, laid out his plans. It is to eliminate capitalism from, from the earth, to ensure that China's totalitarian model of socialism dominates. He's very, he said this in a secret speech he gave uh, right after he came into office on, on January the 5th, 2013. All right, let's, let's talk about um, maybe the more, more diplomatic uh, world. The U.S. is engaged in several kind of collaborations with other countries to, I don't want to say contain China, but to find alliances with other countries that are also concerned about the threat China poses. The Quad with India, uh, Australia, and Japan, AUKUS with the UK and Australia, yeah. some other groupings that, and so there's not like a NATO of the Indo-Pacific, but right. there's there's a network of different alliances and these, yeah. these different structures. Is that, a right, is that the right approach? Is it enough? And 
Are you at all worried that if we have a change in administration that that kind of diplomatic effort might be, shall we say, put on the back burner? Right. Well, look, I think you've got um, uh, very important steps that some of our treaty allies are taking right now. With Australia, of course, AUKUS that we were just talking about, the Australia, UK, US um, uh, uh, grouping, which is uh, in its first pillar, its first phase, is going to allow the rotation of uh, nuclear attack subs. Uh, you know, these are conventionally armed subs that are a huge asymmetric advantage that we enjoy from the U.S. and the U.K. to start uh, rotating on a, on a permanent basis uh, out of Perth um, in Western Australia, right, right at where the Indian Ocean and, and the Pacific really meet. Uh, you have Japan announcing. Uh, a year ago now that they're going to double their defense spending as a percentage of GDP, and they're starting to to figure out where, where to put uh, that money. Uh, th- these alliances are hugely important uh, for the United States and for our security, massively important. And um, it, it's a little bit different than a NATO model. The NATO model is everyone's sort of interwebbed. An attack on one is an attack on all. In this case, we have individual treaties with these countries, but they're starting to talk with one another more in ways that start to simulate that something a little closer to what NATO is like. There's a lot more going on between Australia and Japan now than used to. Uh, I've I've been very encouraged to see uh, how the South Korean president and the prime minister of Japan are are in uh, regular touch. Uh, Those two countries, which, which ought to be closer and closer with one another, are starting to see the logic that that old enmity... uh, Overcoming the history of the relationship. Yeah, at least putting it in perspective, right? And um, and so, uh, yeah, look, when you put all these allies together, you just look at, like, just look at the G7, which isn't even... It's a minority of our our allies, but but some, some heavy hitting ones. I mean, the economic weight of that grouping uh, starts to make China look um, a lot less impressive, I have to say, once you start grouping these industrialized democracies together, ones that have alliances with one another. It's, it's formidable. That's something that China doesn't have. Even if they have an axis that they're building, um, axis leaders never trust one another. I think that's still true, even, even as they're starting to rely a bit more on each other. There's deep mistrust. And um, they've betrayed each other in the past. <laughs> yeah, I'll say they've, they've, you know, in and some we can cases, remind them of that as necessary. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you remember when in, I think it was in Samarkand, uh, you know, in August or something of last year, uh, the camera was still rolling when Xi Jinping and Putin yeah. sat down and. And, and, and right before the camera left, Putin got caught on camera saying, look, I know you've got a ton of concerns about how things are going right now. So let, 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 let me explain. So, uh, Please don't invade me. Yeah, exactly. Talk about a, a long, unguarded border. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and by the way, the Russians... I'll tell you, at least below the level of Vladimir Putin, senior officials are acutely aware of the fact that on Chinese maps, on their internal maps... China claims more Russian territory than China claims of territory of all, all of its other uh, border states where it has yeah. border disputes. Yeah. There's real issues. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and they, don't, they don't use the term Vladivostok in China. They use the old Chinese name for this thing. So, yeah, you know, guard, guard your six there, Vlad. You can see where that's going. Yeah. Uh, Matt, thank you very much. We're, uh, we're out of time. You've been very generous. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. 
That's a wrap. Thanks to Devlin Burney for all of his work producing today's episode. We're now on YouTube. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you like what you heard or saw. Thanks again to Matt Pottinger and John Lipsy. Uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for having me.